Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to an end-of-year Compile the Best Bits edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. This is our look back on the podcast of 2018, in which I see I've introduced my colleague Thea Lenarduzzi in a number of torturous ways. Tuberculotic, an imperious chatelaine, feudal landlady, a cheese-obsessed ice maiden, and the provolone of the critical community. <laughs> And that's just, I got bored of actually Please checking. Yourself. Well, no, I, got, I started looking through old uh, intros and that, that took about five minutes. There was plenty more. Anything you want to bestow upon me, yeah, epithet-wise? I couldn't possibly. No. I mean, I'm more, I'm more you... defence than attack, I think. Yeah. Provolone occurred more than once. Do you like provolone? Uh, Good Italian cheese. Oh, no. Well, I don't know. Yeah. But... Good on bruschetta? Mm, I tend to not put cheese on my bruschetta. Just tomatoes? Mm-hmm. And oil. Do you rub garlic? Basil. Do you rub garlic on it? It has happened. But you, you it has that's... happened. It completely depends on the on the, the power of the ingredients, on how good the tomatoes are, uh, how good the oil is, how good the the basil is. So if it's just so all things being equal, purist. what would you do? Like if you had the best quality ingredients, what's the what's your ideal bruschetta? It would just be chopped tomatoes on bread, lots of lovely olive oil, salt, no. and that's the... a bit of pepper, basil, torn, not cut. You don't chiffonade you basil. Shouldn't, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't cut the basil, you should tear it. See, we learned something. <laughs> it's not literary-based, but I think the food is a running theme. <laughs> uh, it has been a lovely year. We've really enjoyed doing this podcast, and we're grateful to all of you for listening. You've given us literary reviews on iTunes, tweeted us your listening locations, and you've grown in number every month. So we are very grateful. Thank you very much. And as a present... And if we're honest, here to make slightly less work for ourselves over the Christmas period. Yes. We have compiled a look back issue. The Simpsons always used to do. Yeah. Those, they always got like episode 19. They do. They oh, here's some of the bit best bits. We've done that. It's not as good as the Simpsons. Alas, but we've got four of our favourite conversations of the year. And they begin, we go back to January and we talked to Catherine Hughes about Charlotte Bronte. And we asked how easy it was to confuse her with Jane Eyre, which Thackeray, I think, did deliberately. Did he call her Miss Eyre or something like that, I seem to remember? Anyway, is it a good sign? The question we asked was when a novelist is confused with her character, when the characters sort of break out into real life. 
I can't remember what we said was the answer was yes or no to that. Well, probably I think it was it was a bit of both. A bit of both, yeah. I mean, this this episode is part of a kind of a prolonged festival of Brontiania or Brontiania. I mean, isn't it? It sort of began in 2016, the year of Charlotte's birth, and it will keep us going until 2020, which is the bicentenary of Anne's birth. But this year was in fact, though we're choosing Charlotte Bronte here, it was in fact the anniversary of the birth of Charlotte's sister, Emily, whose Withering Heights we also discussed around the middle of this year, noting too that there was an anniversary of Kate Bush's epic reimagining of Withering Heights Were they not born on the same day? Yes, and there was that as well, yeah. Funny old thing. Exactly, the things things we learn. But here, yes, we're, we're talking about Charlotte Bronte's astounding Jane Eyre. Lovely. Then, in February... David Baddiel came in to talk about his essay review that tried to answer the question, what, why, not what, why are Jews so good at comedy? It contained this Jewish joke, which I think is kind of indicative of his approach to the whole thing. It's both funny and sad, and it involves a Holocaust survivor who dies and goes to heaven. On arrival, he tells God a Holocaust joke, and God says, that isn't funny. And the survivor replies, oh, well, you had to be there. Which is a brilliant joke whenever you, however you analyse that, because it, it, it's kind of clever and, and, and thoughtful. And, and the piece, and he was very good, David, I think, on this subject of why it is extraordinary. And he said the history of American comedy is effectively the history of Jewish comedy. And well, the- yeah, exactly. And also and, and how that hasn't sort of come over here, how there is this history of, of Jewish comedy in America, but there isn't here. And in part, that's obviously because the community here is smaller. But also in, in general, I think it, he was really interesting on the rules of telling jokes, you know, what is acceptable? And he, he encourages, um, Badil encourages a kind of literary criticism of, of jokes, doesn't he? You know, is the, is the joke humanising or is it reductive? Also, is there such a thing as too soon when it comes to telling jokes after, you know, after Me Too or Jimmy Savile? Is there such a thing as too soon? And actually, I think you can analyse this endlessly. And he, his sitcom, uh, not sitcom, it's called My Family Not a Sitcom, his stand-up show is two hours of talking about his mum's infidelity prior to her death and his dad's dementia and is an exploration of those things and it's kind of endlessly a fascinating topic of what makes you laugh and what are the ethics because jokes and ethics are kind of connected aren't they together what's what and why is a bad joke or a cruel joke particularly bad and that before you even get into questions like offensiveness as well so there's a lot to get into there then in june margaret drabble dropped in to talk about the reissuing of all 22 volumes of muriel sparks novels the literary output of this writer in Drabble's words, he called her a fine woman bashing triumphantly away at the typewriter that tormented her. Gabriel Josipovici actually nominated the collection as his book of the year, saying he was moved, dazzled and made profoundly happy by these remarkable works. And actually, I don't know that much of Sparks stuff. You know a little bit more than than, than I do, but uh, Margaret Job was very good on that. She really had an affinity with yeah. Muriel Sparks. Yeah, I think she did. And also, it just seemed fitting to, to have this novel, Muriel Spark, novelist Muriel Spark, who was so admired by Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh, to have her discussed in the year that would have been her 100th birthday to have her discussed by another of Britain's great novelists now, you know, Margaret Drabble herself. And, and so she weighed in on, on Sparks' one-off voice, which doesn't really fit anywhere, the, the mysteriousness of, of Spark. And there's also that story of, of Spark's strange, possibly pill popping fueled conversion to Catholicism, yep. which Spark credits with completing her, her, her own transformation into a novelist. And there's also a funny spin, isn't there, on um, Margaret Drabble has a funny spin on the whole only write what you know idea. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it, it's worth listening to. It's very good. And then finally, the indefatigable Claire Pettit comes to talk about the Peterloo Massacre, the bicentenary of which is in August next year, weirdly, although all the stuff about it came out this year. She loved Mike Lee's film 
on Peterloo, although our history editor, David Horsepool, really didn't like it. He told me all about that. But uh, <laughs> I did ask every him. every minute. Yeah, he, but it was interesting. He found it too wordy and too worthy, I suppose. Which are precisely the things that, that Claire Pettit yeah. celebrated. It doesn't make me tempted... I don't know. It's interesting. See what you think, whether it's worth going to. But she, she was, and it's interesting about how we commemorate events like that and the relevance of it, because workers' rights, state suppression, enemies of the people and the like are always timely subjects. So that is four examples of this podcast. We hope you remember them with pleasure or you're hearing them for the first time. Do enjoy this look back and we look forward to doing more of the same in 2019. When Charlotte Bronte published Jane Eyre in 1847, she did so under the pseudonym Curra Bell, a name devised both to conceal her real name, because she thought justifiably that critics were prejudiced against female authors, and to preserve her actual initials, CB. In that sense, Charlotte Bronte was both visible and invisible at the same time, and it was taken, as these things always seem to be, as a gauntlet. To complicate matters, she added a subtitle to the fiction, an autobiography. And so the chase was on to unveil the real author of this book described as preeminently anti-Christian, immoral and sexually improper, as well as, to anyone who was really honest with themselves, extraordinarily good. Ever since, a tendency has persisted to see author and work as neatly overlaid, to seek to expose the real life in every fold of the fiction, and to conflate utterly text and context. This is true in literature more broadly, of course. Think of the much more recent hunt for the real Elena Ferrante, But the case of Jane Eyre is something of a prototype in the game. And as Catherine Hughes shows in this week's paper, reviewing a motley selection of recent works on Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte, the game is far from over. Catherine Hughes joins us in the studio now to cry, I imagine, in utter exasperation, the author is dead, long live the author. Absolutely. (laughs) I like the word motley there. Well, motley crew. A motley was a motley crew. (laughs) Did you find them a motley crew of books? Uh, They they weren't the... Okay, I can be honest. Yeah, please be honest. (laughs) It wasn't the strongest selection of books. So it's, 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 it's a very interesting kind of sort of task you have. Sometimes, actually, you can write a more interesting piece out of books that are actually just not super, super interesting. But this should be the goal. This should be the great year for Bronte, shouldn't it? We should be. Well, I mean, there are a few because the Brontes, the anniversary is going on and on. Believe me, we we started in 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 sixteen for Charlotte Bronte, and we're going right the way on to twenty because that's Anne Bronte. We we have you know five glorious years of Bronte to remember. Okay, that's good. I refer to Bronte as a kind of exemplar in this kind of cat and mouse game, and I suppose the analogy is quite apt in that only really one of those is, is, is playing the other sort of fighting but she was assailed Charlotte Bronte on all sides first in terms of trying to discover who the real author was and then secondly in in sort of forcing the protagonist and the author to be the same person yes I mean I think it's always a problem for, for women writers it's 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 yeah. not just Charlotte I mean you think about Jane Austen mm. by a lady and then the hunt was on to find out who who she who she really was. So we have it here with Charlotte Bronte. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's something, it's something to do with being a woman writer. I mean, if you think about Jane Austen, you know, by a lady, that immediately provokes all sorts of excitement. And I think, again, here, because although Cara Bell is nominally a, a male name, I think everybody realised mm. straight away that it's by a woman. That's completely kind of intriguing. You know, who is this person? This kind of 
person with sort of transgender kind of identity, but whose writing has the most extraordinary female voice, the kind of female voice you haven't heard before. Rebellious, uh, not very nice, sexual longing, and actually very, very kind of cutting. You know, the, the voice of Jane Eyre is actually, she's often not a very nice narrator. And so it's kind of completely intriguing. There's this not nice woman speaking out but she appears to be going under a, a man's name. You know, what's going on? And is that deliberate? You can make this charge against Ferrante that she plays the literary game. She creates the interest in order to sort of stoke the fires in terms of people's uh, views of, of, of the author. Do you think this is a game that, that, that Bronte's playing here? She wants people to get interested and intrigued, you know, the autobiography of, of Jane Eyre. How much, how much does she does she want this, uh, this, this, this degree of attention? No, I don't think she's conscious of it. Um... I think it's it's actually her her publishers who suggest that she calls uh, it an autobiography, and she goes along with that suggestion. So on the title page it says autobiography edited by Carabelle, but that's her publisher's idea. Mm. I think they're absolutely hip to it. They're kind of so alive to the fact that you're going to create this kind of extraordinary excitement about what's real, what's not real, who's who. I don't think she did, no. I think, I mean, it's very easy to, to um, imagine her some sort of naive who rarely went outside Yorkshire. That's clearly not true. But I think there was a naivety there as well. And I think like so many of us, you know, I speak as, a, as an author, we both sort of long for a claim and absolutely hate it when it comes. And I think, you know, she was wrestling with that as well. You know, she wants people to know who she is. But on the other hand, it's absolutely unbearable to feel that you're going to be picked over in public. In, in a sense, the naivety that you mentioned, it, it's it's on the part of the reader as well though because certainly when she was first published you almost can't blame people for for just jumping to the the conclusion that this must be autobiographical because it was so it was probably the first one of the earliest times that we've had such psychological depth and and truth from a, a woman I think George Henry Lewis described it as the first woman rather than just a pattern I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, that voice, it sounds... I mean, it, it sounds like she's jumped off the page. She's saying, you. She addresses mm. the reader yeah. as you. You. If you knew what it was like in the Red Room when I was tied to a chair as a 10-year-old and punished, if you knew what it was like to walk into Thornfield and see all the ca- all the candles and all the mirrors, you too would be dazzled. It's an extraordinary kind of intimate voice. In a way that Austin never was. Austin, no. Austin mm. had, a narrator, had a narratorial voice that was kind of arch, but it yeah. wasn't personal. Absolutely. So... Austin is quite removed. There's a sense of a narrator's sort of constructed kind of voice. Of course, one immediately has to say the shot running and Jane Eyre, I mean, yes, it does sound very real, but I mean, how real do you really think Mr Rochester is? How many Mr <laughs> Rochesters do you really think that were walking around or hopping around the Yorkshire Dales? I mean, not really. So that's the really interesting thing. It starts off with this kind of absolutely believable voice of a child, and we've all been that damaged child. I think that's, that's part of the appeal. And then she gradually takes us into a world where now, actually most of us have haven't met met Mr Rochester and most of us haven't found you know that we're in danger of having our houses burnt down by um, our employer's um, first wife thank heavens <laughs> so it's, it's a really interesting kind of progression from absolute psychological truth to absolute sort of fan- fantasy and how angry you tell a great story which you should you should say again about what happens when Thackeray came to visit how angry was she was she was Bronte when people started saying you're you're Jane Eyre Oh, well, she was absolutely furious. You're absolutely right. 1851, um, she goes to see a, a, a lecture given by William 
Thackeray, who's a great hero of hers. And uh, he comes down at the end of the public lecture and says to his mum, who's also in the audience, Mother, let me introduce you to Jane Eyre. And she is, Charlotte Bronte is absolutely furious. She doesn't say anything then and there because she's polite. She's a vicar's daughter. But the next day, she manages to buttonhole him in the um, drawing room of her publishers. And she is just furious. She's only four foot ten. She's a tiny little woman. But George Smith, her publisher, describes her as being white with anger. Literally. This, you know, she's, she only comes up to Zachary's elbow, but she's telling him what for. How dare you? And she says to him, how would you like it if I called you after the name of one of your characters? And I think, of course, that's a very interesting point. We do tend to mix women writers well, up indeed, with their characters. Has, is, there, is there a male Victorian author even who you'd never confuse? They tend to con- uh, conceal their identities. Or... No. Is there any central character? Because Dickens, there was David Copperfield, but that's mm. a deliberate That's mm. a deliberate thing, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's kind of making that a partially an autobiography, the CDDC thing. Do we ever really blur the male authors and their creations? Is this a sort of act of mis- sort of concealed misogyny in some way? Well, I, th- I mean, I think Thea's right. By and large, people are writing un- under their own name, so that's that. You know, there's, there's, you don't have that excitement about mm. identity. Yeah, it's clear who the person is. I think yes. Um, the, you know, it's unusual enough for a woman to be writing, so there's a massive interest in what kind of woman writes, and that means you're very, very interested in finding about out about the author and necessarily because women you know had much much more limited lives yeah. clearly and we you know of course Charlotte Bronte went out of Yorkshire she went to Brussels on two occasions but still it's a very very parochial life so of course the temptation is to read the two in relation is it a tribute though I mean if, if you know you have this great novelist saying here is a woman who embodies the character that everybody has come to recognize I mean is there is there a sort of summer why did Thackeray do it do you think was he being mean? Was he being playful? Was he? It's hard to say. Look, isn't it? poor man. He's just given a public lecture, and I mean, <laughs> I'm, just sure, a mistake. I'm sure you stick, I'm sure you give public lectures. One comes off the podium, and you just can't think what to say. And what you're actually thinking is, was I good? Yeah. How good am I? That's what you're actually thinking. And then you see this woman, and she's an awkward little creature, Charlotte Bronte. She's socially awkward. I mean, what? Yeah. yeah. And you've got your mum there. I mean, it's yeah. A I mean, it's a strange scenario. Yeah. 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 <laughs> going, don't say Jane Eyre. Don't say Jane Eyre. Don't say Jane Eyre. Here's Jane Eyre. No. Um, let's talk about um, Villette because you mentioned in Brussels there why do we think that this hasn't why does this this kind of conflation of of of, of protagonist and author not happen to the same extent in Villette because I mean it's that's arguably closer to to her real life experience and she has the same first person perspective that she has in Jane Eyre there. um I, I think it's because actually uh Jane Eyre is, is just the more popular book it's the first book it's a function of the market it also has this I mean it lays down a template doesn't it for a sort of Mills and Boone kind of romance I mean if you do read Mills and Boone you'll find in effect it's it's Jane Eyre I yeah. mean that is that is the the story and so therefore and of course a, we all do read Mills and Boone don't we I once wrote an essay on precisely what you just said Oh, really? Did you? <laughs> okay. The Mills and Boone is Jane Eyre being replaced? Well, is is all of that sort of type of literature. Yeah. Did you read a lot of Mills and Boone for that? <clears throat> I drew my conclusions and I did. Dipped in and out. You dipped in and out. <laughs> as they might say themselves. Everything's a... is a much harder book, isn't it? You know, yeah. we, don't, we don't actually know at the end whether she gets her chap. In fact, know. she probably doesn't, does she? I think he went down... You know, I think he's down in Davy Jones' locker. I mean, yeah. we don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's much less easy. It's, it's a sort of broken back novel, in a sense. You know, it has a very odd narrative structure. Mm. It's often described as the first sort of modernist novel. So it, it's very much about interior experience but that sits rather oddly with a very well realised it's a rewrite of her first attempt at a novel isn't it 
Is there a, the Professor? Did she originally? Did she, did she write that? Have I mis, misheard that? Is no, there Professor a, is a distinct book, but uh, it is also set in Belgium. Oh, so it's a bit. It's, okay, yeah. okay. But and do you think? I mean, the sophisticated judgment is it's a better book than, than Jane. <sighs> It's a, it's a more interesting book. I think book. it's much more interesting. Yeah. yeah. Precisely because it, it's it's an open-ended book. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, it feels very modern, doesn't it? Mm. It's a modernist book. It, it feels open-ended, ambiguous. It could go in all sorts of places. We never quite know what's going on. And it's kind of hard strange? to discover Jane Eyre again because Jane Eyre comes with a lot of cultural freight in a way that... They let, I imagine a lot of people have never read. I mean, it, it's not whenever at, at university, it's not discussed. When you're at school, I, I find Jane Eyre is this sort of dominant cultural mm. thing, you know, idea of Rochester and the mad woman in the attic. It's so much easier to turn into marketable oh. stuff, though, whereas Villette is, for all the reasons, Catherine, you were explaining, is, is much harder to contain and package. It's really interesting what you say about Jane Eyre and how we all know, we all, because I reread Jane Eyre when I was writing this piece. And of course, I mean, I've read it many times, but what one oh. always forgets is there is this very long section where Rochester isn't in it. Uh, if you remember, she goes off, she wanders on the moors and she bumps into her cousin, Sindran Rivers, who's a, a rather upright sort of missionary clergyman and two rather drippy sisters. And that takes up a lot of space in the book. Now, you never see that in the films. You never see that in the television adaptation. So there's something about Jane Eyre that, that I mean, it's absolutely right. It does lend itself to commercial product, but it, it lends itself also to quite kind of um, radical excising. You can take that middle section out. And, and how did you feel when you reread it? When, when you reread these things, I know, I know, I'm supposed to. So this is the awful thing. I know I'm supposed to say, I, you know, that I feel that the extra bits add so much richness and depth, uh, and you know. And give a much fuller reading experience. They're so boring. I mean, nobody. <laughs> Did you could... skim? No, I didn't skim well because done. because I'm a good reviewer. But yeah. um, but you know, it's just it's just so dull, so dull, so tedious. And you know, that's what one forgets. You you will search very hard for Cinder Rivers in any of the adaptations. That's interesting, and it's just become known almost as a as a symbol. And was that true for her life? Did she feel that she was always known as? Jane Eyre, even as time progressed, even as she produced other other books, I think she did, and it it rankled, and it certainly rankled with the man that she married. She famously married her uh, father's curate at the end of her life. He was furious; he couldn't bear that sort of thing. In fact, he would pretend not to, to not understand what people were talking about <laughs> when they tried to mention uh, Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte in the same sentence. He'd sort of go, "I'm I'm sorry, I don't." <laughs> Which what you're you talking about. Which is why, on a concluding point, it's so interesting that someone would choose to write a spin-off novel from his perspective as one of the books that you've reviewed in, in this spread. And we have to leave that as a kind of a tantalising thread and hope that people will go and read the piece because there are two bizarre spin-off novels that you've looked at here. Absolutely. Two odd novels in which uh, novelists have chosen to sort of inhabit a, a role um, Bell Nichols in the case of one and Mr Rochester in the case of the other and rewrite the whole plot. But I think what's interesting is maybe not so much the, those works but the fact that something about Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre that just pulls us all in and makes us want to have our own go at it, to rewrite, to fiddle, to play with the boundaries. I think that's a good place to leave it. Catherine Hughes, thank you so much. Let's start with David Bedil. This week in the paper, he shares a Jewish joke, which is both funny and sad. It involves a Holocaust survivor who dies and goes to heaven. On arrival, he tells God a Holocaust joke, and God says, that isn't funny. The survivor replies, oh, well, you had to be there. 
That is comedy as bathos, as satirical observation, and above all, as a survival mechanism. It also makes overt what is often merely implied, that there is a cord of connection between Jewishness and comedy, that this cultural identity, more readily than almost any other, leads to the creation of that cultural product. As Badil notes, in the latter half of the 20th century, American comedy just was Jewish comedy, even if the Jewishness had to be tamped down to appease mainstream audiences. A case in point, he believes, is the sitcom Friends, which was written as if for six old Jews and then cast with six young, attractive people. Is it possible, then, to answer the deceptively simple question of why Jews are good at comedy? The argument may be elusive, but Badil opts for the irreducible nowness common to Judaism, its rules and its self-awareness. For, and this is what he says, in minutiae there is humanity. It is in reaching after the grandiose things in life that civilization gets skewed. To be microscopic comically is to create engagement. These people, the joke says, are like you because, like you, they sweat the small stuff. Jewish jokes either start by focusing on the small or end by making the big things small. The effect is the same. Is that the secret to its success? David Badil joins Thea and me now. David, welcome to you. Thank you. A kind of first principle then, is there something intrinsically comic within Jewish culture, do you think? Well, you know, the review I wrote for the TLS is, of course, short. Uh, Not that short, but too short to cover uh, the question uh, that Jeremy Dalba in the book I'm reviewing, Jewish Comedy A Serious History, is trying to answer, which is partly, yes, is there something specifically comic about the Jews or about the Jews' relation to comedy? And he spends a lot of time actually trying to find it in Jewish folklore and, and the religion and the Talmud and things like that. But actually, one of the things which he doesn't say overtly, but which is obviously the case, is that Jews probably always have to practice their comedy in non-Jewish environments, i.e. Jews are always, you know, fitting into another culture in order to be comedians. And, you know, America is the best example of that because America is the immigrant culture. And something I wasn't able, just didn't have time to say uh, in, in the review, but <laughs> gladly have time to say in the podcast, is I think the other reason, apart from that minutiae thing that, that you read out, is that I think Jews are very good at being in a culture and not in it. So Jews are, you know, because Jews are not eminently, as it were, visibly different in the way that perhaps other minority cultures are, they have a foot in the mainstream culture, but they have a foot slightly outside it too. And I think that is a very good position for a comedian, to be kind of a little different. Not massively different, but a little different. And I think that is a reason I wasn't able to go into in the view, but I think... The combination of that and what you talked about, which is this Jewish tendency towards being grounded and pathetic, are possibly the two base reasons I would give. We have another piece by uh, a woman called Becca Rothfeld who's looking at Jewish culture and and humour. And and she says uh, that it's an adaptive response to centuries of marginalisation, a kind of defence mechanism. Do you buy that as an argument as well, which is kind of um, taking your point about being on the outside a step further? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I think there's being on the outside and then there is, of course, being a bit further outside, which is being attacked. And obviously quite a lot of Jewish comedy is about anti-Semitism. And actually, um, I was on the Today programme once talking about Jewish comedy and, and a couple of other people on were not Jewish. And at the end of it, we were asked to give our favourite Jewish joke. And I noticed that all the others 
you know, without in any way suggesting that they were actually anti-Semitic, gave jokes about how Jews like money. And I told this joke, which I may as well tell now, Go on. Uh, which is, uh, I don't know if it is my favourite Jewish joke, but it's the one that came to mind. Uh, an Englishman, a Frenchman and a Jew are sitting on a bench. And the Englishman says, oh, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have beer. The Frenchman says, oh, I am so tired and thirsty, I must have wine. And the Jew says, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have diabetes. And I, uh, even though that is obviously another stereotype of Jews being hypochondriac, I felt that the key stereotype that has marked down Jews as noticeably different, and of course, at some level leads to their genocide, is that they are obsessed with, with money. And so that, I would say, although I, there are some Jewish jokes about money, in general, that's the joke told about Jews by non-Jews and is anti-Semitic. And I'm just going to tell another joke that Dalber tells, and also actually uh, this other book I mentioned, Dora Baum, the Jewish joke tells. And this is a joke that's in both of them. And I think this is a very important joke. I'd never heard it before before I read these books. And there are two Jews. I think it's a very ancient joke, because I think in Baum's one that he talks about a, a, a passing through a church in the Pale of Settlement, which is some 19th century <laughs> Russian <laughs> corridor. Uh, and they, they see a church. Outside the church, there is a sign saying, come in here and convert for 10 rubles. And the two Jews talk about it, and one of the Jews says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go in. And the other Jew waits outside, and then the other guy comes out, the first Jew comes out. And the Jew who's waiting outside says to him, so, did you get your 10 rubles? And the other one says, oh, that's all you people think about. <laughs> and I love that joke, because that is not an anti-Semitic Jewish joke about how Jews are obsessed with money. It's a joke about how... Gentiles think Jews are obsessed with money. And therefore, those jokes in general, which do represent you know, an element of the comedy we're talking about, are not, in my mind, Jewish comedy by Jews. It's also a joke about assimilation, that. And one yeah, of, the, one of the, the theses that comes out of, of, of your piece and others, actually, we're running, is this notion that there's something universal about Jewish comedy, because it's often about the underdog. And, of course, yeah. at some level, we all feel we're underdogs, yeah, for some true. reason. So is there a, a mechanism by which comedy assists assimilation or, or at least treats of universals that might mean we focus on how we're alike rather than how we're different? Then I think you have to go into the American experience, which I don't think has necessarily happened completely in other countries. So the American experience, I would say yes, that there seems to have been... I'm being empirical here, talking from experience. I went and did stand-up in New York first. I've done it a couple of times uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was in a club in New York, just an ordinary club, and I noticed that one comedian started talking about Passover, about how Passover had come and gone. But then I noticed the next comedian did, and he was Mexican. Right? And then I realized something, which is that it's been so successfully assimilated, kind of Jewish stuff, in New York particularly, but maybe in sort of, you know, well, in, in the big cities in America, that something has happened there which, which doesn't really exist anywhere else, which is a general understanding in the mainstream culture of what Jewish stuff is, of bits of Yiddish, of the Jewish attitude, and that has come via comedy, and that is very good. I mean, I would say, I would say any minority culture is, is sort of happy at some level at the idea that their things are noticed by and, you know, given credence and respect to, even in jokes, by the mainstream culture, because it, at the end of the day, if that happens, you sort of feel slightly protected. You yeah. sort of feel like they're not going to kill us, because they know about us, they're humanising us, you know what I mean? 
I would say here, and this has been part of my, for want of a better word, I would say my struggle, but of course it's mine camp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. My, my struggle, we won't but, translate anything to German, don't worry, yeah, in this whole podcast. Um, but part of my thing, I guess, what, as I've been here, is, is, is there an Anglo-Jewish comic culture? And there kind of is, and actually loads and loads of comedians uh, in Britain are Jewish, but it's rare. I, I'm kind of one of the only ones who, who actually forefront their Jewishness. So, same, you know, Matt Lucas and Simon Amstel and Stephen Fry and Alexi Sale, you know, they're all Jewish, Ben Elton, but Jewishness has never been a big thing for them. And I, I don't think that's, that's anything to do with anything else except for a sense that there is no obvious, visible, powerful Jewish comic culture in Britain like there is in America. And so they haven't fastened to it. But I, I've always been keen on sort of trying to create one. Why, why do you think that that's not transferred then? Why is, say, uh, the legacy of Lenny Bruce you go into um, a fair bit, as Dalma does? How come that hasn't carried over here, do you think? Well, because there's something very Jewish about Lenny Bruce, but there's also something very American about him. You know, mm-hmm. that routine that I quote about, you know, Count Basie's uh, a Jew and, you know, someone else is a goy and blah, blah, blah. It's very Jewish, but it's very American. It's jazz and, it, and all the rest of it. And so uh, there's something about the yoking together of the Jewish voice and the American voice that has been incredibly potent comically. But I also would say is the communities are different. I mean, there's, for a start, there are like 5 million Jews in New York or whatever mm-hmm. it is. There's 300,000 Jews in Britain. Uh, so it's a small community. And um, I once said of uh, the, well, someone once said to me of the Jewish Chronicle that their headline, their basic headline is, oh, they hate us. And I said, no, no, it's, oh, they hate us, and let's not make a fuss about it. <laughs> because, because Jews in Britain are British, and so as a result, they don't really like to put their heads too much above the parapet. They're reserved. And that's not good if you want to be Larry David, you know, because Larry David is loud and, you know, makes a thing about him being Jewish. A lot of Jews in Britain sort of that thing, which, to be fair, is a slightly European thing. You know, like many Jews, we come from you know, running away, we come from refugee stock, there's a fear of like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk too much about being Jewish. And in a much more banal way, I would say, if you look at, say, Simon Amstel, Matt Lucas, Stephen Fry, whatever, they they are gay. And I think becoming someone who would talk about stuff, gay was a cooler thing to talk about than Jewish, I think. Uh, I mean, this sounds like I'm criticising them, I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm just saying that I think Jew has not been a particularly cool identity in Britain for a comedian to talk about, but I'm doing my best, so I've done my best <laughs> to make it... Uh, you failed, David. David, I've failed, failed to make it cool, completely. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, this is slightly off the point, but I'm, as we're talking about American comedy, why is Friends Jewish? I mean, I think it's to do with just the sort of way they talk to each other. I mean, yeah. it's the same in Seinfeld. The thing that I say about Seinfeld is that, you know, it was uh, due down, as it were, for the mainstream culture, and but what I mean by that is that George Costanza is Greek, yeah. And obviously, he's Jewish. I mean, he's ridiculously Jewish. Elaine uh, is meant to be non-Jewish as well. So the only non-Jewish character in Seinfeld uh, is, is Kramer. But, they, they, you know, it was felt by networks at the time that that would be too Jewish. And with friends, you know, it's just, in a way, the way they talk to each other, the cadences and, again, the bathos and whatever. To be fair to friends, two of them are Jewish. Monica and Ross are, are Jewish. Geller. That's uh, right, and yeah. it's not highlighted that much. But, in fact, Seinfeld talks about it much more, and there's a very famous Seinfeld episode where Seinfeld's dentist decides to convert, uh, and he tells Jerry a Jewish joke while he's on the chair, and Jerry's kind of outraged. (laughs) And and then later on he discusses why he's outraged, and someone says, George says it's because, you know, because you don't want him to be Jewish. 
And he says, no, no, I, I don't think, I, it's because of the jokes. I just don't think he's funny enough. Uh, and so that, you know, that's a very Seinfeld thing, is that Seinfeld was prepared to go into the nitty-gritty of Jews and jokes. I don't know, I don't know if I've ever saw that in Friends. Yeah, it's more self-conscious at Seinfeld. Um, we, we, I began by quoting that very good Auschwitz joke that you yeah. tell, and I've seen you tell it on, on social media as well. I think it's yeah. just it's brilliant. You also refer to Harriet Harman getting in trouble on a BBC political show for quoting a terrible Holocaust Holocaust joke, and I saw that interview. It wasn't entirely clear why she was doing it, even as she was doing it. Do you think there are rules? I mean, this is the thing that I think Seinfeld often meditates upon, the, the rules of comedy. Are there specific rules to do with telling jokes about the Holocaust, or are they just a simple rule? If you come into it with clean hands and good intentions, you can do it. If you don't, you can't. Well, I think there are rules for telling jokes, uh, and I think Harry Harmon is not a comedian. <laughs> and uh, and I think actually, I, I can say this: I think is that telling jokes is actually quite a skillful process. And most people don't don't really know that because obviously we all tell jokes, but telling them publicly takes quite a lot of skill. And Harriet Harman didn't have that. And she, the point she was trying to make, I think because they were talking, I think, about what is and isn't acceptable online, was that some jokes are unacceptable. But then she went on to tell an incredibly unacceptable joke. And that's kind of a complex thing to do, which the complexity, I think, didn't quite reach her, which is that the joke will still feel, you know, extremely awful. And she also went on to claim that uh, Andrew Neil would have liked the joke, which he got very upset about. Um, and so I think, uh, I mean, my personal view about this and uh, about Holocaust jokes or whatever it might be, like dementia jokes that I do in my show, any subject that is considered to be, you know, off limits or you can't be funny about this, is it, it's never true because you have to look at the individual joke. Yeah. So it's never the case that a, a Holocaust joke is unacceptable because it's laughing at the victims of the Holocaust because, and the TLS is a good thing to look at that, it's essentially you have to deconstruct it, you have to do some literary criticism of the joke and you have to say who is being laughed at what stereotypes are being used, if any, you know, uh, is the joke humanising uh, the victims of the Holocaust or is it non-humanising them? So if I can go over that, that uh, I don't want to do that joke, but it basically just reduced the Jews in the Holocaust to nothingness and to ashes, whereas I contrasted it with Larry David, yeah. who did a routine on SNL, for which he got into trouble by stupid people online saying you can't do jokes about this. But the routine was about, an incredibly edgy routine, actually, about how he had noticed that a lot of the Me Too villains were Jewish, and he just kind of said this. Um, that itself, I thought, was edgier, in fact, than the Holocaust thing. But his point was, male Jews are obsessed with women. He says, even if I was in Auschwitz, I'd still be checking out the women. And then he does this hilarious bit where he looks over to an imaginary woman and says, hey, you know, when this is like all over, do you want to, like, go for dinner or, you know, just hang out. And then he's like, what? What's the problem? Is it me or is it just the whole thing? <laughs> and I love that. A, it was just a hilarious bit, but also it sort of moved me because it did that thing of saying these yeah. people, they are real people. They are humans. They are like you and me. They would think about dinner and sex and they were killed. And that is moving and funny at the same time. And the crucial difference also being, of course, that the, the teller has to be invested in, in the history that that he or she is drawing on. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that's like a condition. Uh-huh. So I, I think it is an emotional truth. So I think that Larry David, I don't know his personal history, but I'm sure Larry David has had relatives who were killed in the Holocaust. Uh, Larry David is Jewish. He certainly has a, you know, thinks very deeply and comically about that identity. That's true. However, I don't think it is the case 
absolutely that you have to be part of that minority to be able to tell the edgy joke. Uh, I think it definitely helps because you probably just are invested in the truth. It's hard to it's hard to imagine a non-Jewish person doing that joke, though. Yeah, it is hard to imagine it. I, I accept that. But I still think it's about deconstructing the yeah. meaning rather than necessarily the, just basing it on the identity of the teller. We talked on, on social media, David, about... Do you remember when James Corden told jokes about Me Too? Yeah. And he told jokes about Harvey Weinstein, and it was just two days after the story really broke. And he was, he was excoriated for it. Um, and arguably, not because it's wrong to tell jokes about Harvey Weinstein, because actually puncturing the bubble of Harvey Weinstein is something that comedy could could do very well but it seemed he just didn't do it with enough ferocity or enough skill so he was criticised for doing stuff about something that's not funny in inverted yeah, commas. I defended him online got into various fights about that. I mean uh, I think it was complicated. I, I think the ability to do jokes about a difficult subject is always necessary and that I think the blanket ban that seemed to be sort of looming uh, at that point, uh, and the idea that you know you were mocking the victims of Harvey Weinstein by doing jokes about it seemed to me to be clearly wrong. Clearly, the target was Harvey Weinstein, and not telling jokes about Harvey Weinstein was already something that I'd seen other comedians, you know, accused of as, as if they were leaving him out. And then actually, what happened was soon after that, Seth Meyers and, and Jimmy Fallon and, and you know all those people, John Oliver, did lots of jokes about him, SNL or whatever. And it seemed to me to be a case of like, oh, they can do it because they're cool, even though they were all principally men. But James Corden can't do it because he's not cool. And I thought that was unfair. Having said that, they weren't very good jokes. And I guess it might, at some level, come down to that. Is there such a thing as, uh, this is something that people often say, and I remember in in the wake of um, the Jimmy Savile affair as well, is too soon. People say, you know, oh, too soon, too soon. Is there such a thing as too soon? No, I don't agree with too soon. Actually, in my show, My Family Not the Sitcom, which I'm off to do tonight, I talk about the too soon phenomenon, specifically uh-huh. with jokes about people who, who have just died, um, uh, about how that happens quite a lot if you do a joke about someone who's just died. And the reason I do that is I'm about to talk about my mother who died, yeah. um, and, and I'm going to talk very, very comically about her. And, and I ask the question, who is going to say to me about my the, you know, making jokes about my own dead mother too soon? Um, and I... I don't really agree with that, although obviously we all know the, the comedy is tragedy plus time thing. I, I sort of don't accept that really. Mm. I mean, I sort of, I sort of feel the truth of it. I guess, I, I, you know, I, I mean, for example, it's quite common now in American movies to see nine eleven jokes. There's a brilliant joke in the Big Sick. Uh, in the Big Sick, there's a bit where the main character, who's Asian, is meeting the, his white in-laws, as it were, for the first time. And one of them says it's Ray Romano, actually he's playing the character who's a, who's a sort of straight up rather stupid white guy, says, oh, what's your opinion about 9-11? Uh, just because he's Asian, he says that to him. So essentially it's a racist question. Uh, and the main character says, uh, yeah, oh yeah, it's really terrible. We lost, whatever it is, 12 great guys or whatever. I can't remember <laughs> how many it was, unfortunately, so I've screwed up that joke. Um, that in itself is a thing that we wouldn't have seen, obviously, closer to 2001 and now it's quite common a sort of commonly acceptable edgy thing to allow 9-11 jokes there's actually no logical reason for that is there no and it's, I think it arguably comes back to, to intent again doesn't it it's about deconstructing the purpose of the joke and and its context and if it's done with without hatred or without the effect of cause, without the desire to cause hatred that's, a, that's, a, that's that presumably makes it acceptable isn't it 
No, I don't know if that's true. I, 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 in terms of the time thing, um, I mean, I, I guess what you could say is if you were to do a completely innocuous, without hatred joke, the day after a major tragedy, it would still be considered to be hateful because... But not by same, you. I, I'm saying something really kind of nerdy here, which is that, that logically, time should not make such a big difference. But I guess the assumption is that any joke made about a tragedy the day after the tragedy or a week, only a week after the tragedy is liable to be hurtful or more hurtful yeah. to those people. Then again, if you had someone killed in 9-11, a close relative, there's no reason why you aren't hurt and upset by a joke five years later. That's true. Just finally, David, your Twitter bio is one word, Jew, and we just talked about social media. How do you find discussing matters relating to Jewishness on, on social media? Is it a place of, of subtlety and nuance and, and, and great debate? <laughs> I doubt it very much. Uh, no, it's not. And actually, as you know, I get into a lot of conversations with both straightforward anti-Semites, but more often, and this is more complicated in a way, people who don't really know what anti-Semitism is and don't really recognise their own anti-Semitism. Actually, to bring it back round to comedy, uh, I happened to tweet yesterday, uh, just because I was watching it, and I love The Simpsons, so I should make that absolutely clear, but I happened to tweet yesterday that I was watching the episode in which Krusty the Clown uh, is sort of revealed as Jewish. It's a big, very Jewish episode with Jackie Mason plays his rabbi dad. And I said, sometimes when I'm watching you know, the mean-spirited, obsessed with money, Jewish clown crusty, I think about all the conflicting arguments about Apu. Yeah. Uh, and what I meant by that is, as you may know, there's a very big discussion going on now about whether Apu is a racist character, and one um, Asian writer has sort of said that he, he shouldn't be in The Simpsons and, and whatever. And, I, and I'm not going into... I mean, I'm sure that guy's completely right to bring that up. My point really was anti-Semitism, and this is often my point, tends to get left out at some level of the woke Venn diagram uh, that there just isn't the discussion happening about crusty and whether or not it's acceptable uh, for this Jewish stereotype and then what happened was loads and loads of people started telling me he wasn't anti-Semitic is he even that Jewish I don't see it as him being mean and miserly I think it's just really that he's sort of lonely uh, and of course in any other context that would be well goisplaining is what it is that would be you know, I think a brown person, you know, raising questions about Apu would not be told that Apu was, you know, not actually a racist character yeah. or whatever. It comes back to what I was saying earlier, which is the Jews are not seen as quite different enough to justify, you know, owning that position as ethnic minority with its own, you know, stuff that uh, perhaps it's trying to protect. Uh, David, we could talk about this uh, forever, ever, but you better go and, and, and get, get to Birmingham to, to do your, your show. Yeah. yeah, do some more. <laughs> Yeah, uh, David, thank you so much. For, uh, it's, it's a wonderful piece. I really hope people uh, go check it out and, and read it. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Thea. Cheers. Thank Cheers. you. Bye. 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 Good luck. I find the, the language of the joke itself really interesting. You know how we have all of these different words. There's a gag yeah. or a joke and the kind of the etymology of those differences. Because I was thinking about um, towards the end of his piece where David uh, gives us those two Holocaust jokes. And one in particular is is very sad, it's very wistful. He says um, it's a Holocaust survivor who's lost his entire family. An officer asks him where he intends to go now, and he says, Australia. And the officer says, Australia, but that's so far. And and the survivor says, from where? Yeah. And, you know, that's is is it a joke? Or is it in, in, in Italy we have the word barzelletta, which is it has more to do with telling a story and it's more linked to music and poetry originally yeah. versus scherzo, which is a joke which has more to do with... Punch kind line. of 
punchlines, but it's usually at someone's expense. Okay, and, and so it's a bit cruel. There's, sort of there's a cruelness to it. There's that superiority, you know, yeah. you're laughing because you're superior, all of that sort of theory to it. And I do think it comes to, and he didn't quite agree with this, but I do think it comes to intent and purpose. And if you're telling either one of those Holocaust jokes we've told in this in the course of this podcast, it's quite clear that you can tell them full of humanity and full of recognising what their purpose is. Mm. If you tell one that's just... I funny if I was Googling best Jewish jokes when we were getting this piece together, and half of them are kind of celebratory and inclusive and wry and self-conscious and all the things that there is kind of this in this Jewish comic tradition. And then half of them are just racist jokes. There's whole websites devoted to racist, Mm. anti-Jewish jokes. But it should be possible, and this is not the world we live in, but it should be possible to distinguish between those two things, jokes that are done with clean hands and Mm. jokes that are done for the purposes of ill. And, Mm. And... it shouldn't be impossible to distinguish between those two things. Yeah. Although yeah. the internet isn't possibly the place, or the Twitter's not the place to, to draw those. No, I would think not. Not, not the site of nuance. Yeah, that's exactly true. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Another year and another literary centenary to celebrate, this time that of Muriel Spark, who, had she not died in 2006, would have turned 100 this year. The best known and most widely praised of Spark's novels is undoubtedly The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, the story of a sexually and politically improper schoolteacher in 1930s Edinburgh who, declaring herself in a prime, selects six ten-year-old students to be her special girls her creme de la creme, she purrs, who receive the full force of her educative attentions. As the girls grow up and go their separate ways, or try to, things don't turn out that well. That was Sparks' sixth novel, and her others are in a similarly off-kilter, provocative, fiercely imaginative vein. Spark had, it's fair to say, an interest in petty crime, in smuggling and stealing and cheating and forging. There's plenty of dissembling and jealousy and outright murderous violence in her books. The settings themselves are often rather shifty, especially in the earlier novels, such as The Ballad of Peckham Rye, which plunged the reader into the rough and ready working classes of South East London, and The Girls of Slender Means, set in a women-only boarding house in post-Second World War Kensington. That novella, written in 1963, was selected by Anthony Burgess in the 1980s to appear in his 99 novels, the best in English since 1939. But Spark had long been admired by other novelists, including Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene. 
And yet, on the whole, her work and legacy is not straightforward to assess, oh no. So, as a centenary edition of the novels is published in 22 volumes, edited by Alan Taylor, we have given that enviable task to the equally prolific novelist and critic Margaret Drabble, who joins us in the studio now. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. Um, So I suppose one way to start would be to put to you a question you pose yourself. You say, Spark has unquestionably attained classic status, but what kind of a classic is she? Well, it's very difficult to answer that because the books are so quirky. They've not been much imitated, um, and she isn't imitating many people. She's a one-off voice. It's a very idiosyncratic voice. It doesn't really fit anywhere. I mean, she's not really a feminist, but she's a woman writer writing about strong female characters. But and she's not ideological, except that she's a a Catholic convert. But again, that plays very mysteriously in her work. And she's not a Catholic novelist in the obvious way that her admirers Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh were. So it's very hard to know exactly where to place her um, in terms of narrative style or ethical background. Has she been co-opted by feminist movement? Is, is there a sort of sense that people want her to be a patron saint of feminist writing, but she doesn't quite sort of match that? She doesn't fit at all. I mean, uh, because her characters behave very badly um, as feminists. I mean, they they, they they collaborate with the enemy quite a lot. And I, I think some women... Alice Smith, I think... Her, very much admire. Well, I know she admires her, and possibly she reads her as a feminist. Uh, but maybe she is a feminist in, in certain aspects of her life. I was talking about her with Nell Dunn last night, who greatly admires her. But we were wondering quite what the kind of moral centre of her work is, and it's really, really hard to define. But she's, uh, you mentioned she um, had this famous conversion to Catholicism in the 1950s, um, which is quite an interesting story in itself. But Her reasons for doing that are quite illuminating and presumably they... It was almost like she was trying to find a a total vision, a total world in which to situate her her books, but as you say, there's no complete moral universe there either. No, and there's no continuity of it. Mm. It, it, It's a very, very strange conversion. I mean, I think that she converted, and she probably wouldn't have disagreed with this, because she was in a very, very bad mental state. She was um, popping pills, she was hallucinating, she was paranoid, and um, she was saved from this by conversion, according to her. And she always said that it was conversion that made her into a novelist. So that we have to take her word for that. But sometimes the link isn't very easy to see. With Graham Greene, it's sort of obvious mm-hmm. uh, because yeah. he writes about adultery, damnation and sin. But with Muriel Spark, the sinners are quite often the, the um, heroines or the heroes. And that, that is perplexing. And Catholicism as a subject feels a bit dating now, doesn't it? That You talk about Green and War, but the idea of Catholicism as a grand subject for literature felt true at various points in, in the, the history of the novel, but does it, does it feel the same now? Does that almost make it seem rather quaint? It does seem quaint. It seems quirky rather than devout, if you yeah. know what I mean. It's, I mean, I have had friends who have been serious Catholics. My friend Bernadine Bishop, who published three wonderful novels very late in life. She came from a Catholic family and her novels are Catholic, but totally broad-minded, wonderful, forgiving and generous. But they are Catholic in spirit. But that is not the mainstream now at all. Yeah. So do you, do you have a, a favourite novel of hers or one that you think best encapsulates her style? I mean, perhaps the two things aren't the same there. 
well, The Girls of Slender Means is very good, but I'm not sure if I like it. I mean, it's, it's so strange that you admire these books, you enjoy reading them, and you're not quite sure how much you like them. I like one or two of the late ones very much. There's, I like Symposium, which is about a crazy, disastrous dinner party, and it's all told in narrative reverse. It sort of begins at the end, and it's just, just very funny. So there are sort of different reasons for liking them. Um, I don't like the early ones very much. They are gloomy. I mean, they're, they're set, as, you, as the introduction said, in a kind of gloomy backwater of bad behaviour. And they're depressing. And that partly was the post-war feeling of the 50s. Food was terrible. <laughs> Lodgings were terrible. Life was terrible. But, and the later ones have much more glamour in them. And I, that's more enjoyable. There's always the wild streak, though, even in the gloomy kind of... Uh, you know, the Ballad of Peckham Rye, yeah. or there's always this wild streak, almost like Bulgakovian rompishness. Yes, there is. I mean, she she did love things to go wrong and terrible things to happen. And she's not always quite clear about whether they're supernatural or whether they're just natural. I mean, yeah. is the character in the Ballad of Peckham Rye the devil, or is he just a very strange guy? And is he a convert who, what happens to him, he goes to Africa and comes back again? There's very, very strange kind of freelance storylines going all the time. She always said that um, she dominated her characters, but I do have a feeling at times that her characters just sort of make themselves up in a, in a crazy way in her imagination. Uh, and what was the relationship with writing and mental health? Because there's a line you use which um, we put in the subject, which is a fine woman bashing triumphantly away at the typewriter that tormented her. Did she get peace and in writing or was it an outlet that she just had to use do you feel what was the relationship between that and her her mental state it gave her power and it gave her control and she was very keen on having control she was always sure she was right she wouldn't take editorial criticism she knew she was right and most of the time she was so it gave her a sense of power which relates to the feminism in a way, because she was a powerful woman. She, w- she was in control of her life, and she didn't suffer fools gladly, and she was extremely successful. I think you get a sense of that, don't you, in the, in the titles of some of her books, The Public Image, The Driver's yep. Seat, Territorial Rights. Yep. That is absolutely yeah. true. And I did find The Driver's Seat very interesting, because I'm not sure, I could never discover whether Muriel Spark herself could drive. (laughs) But she loves the phrase, the driver's seat, and not only in that novel. It's as though she wanted to be in the driver's seat. I think she may have driven, because there's a reference to buying an early car. But whether she drove it or not, I don't know. That's pertinent to your own your own writing as well, though, I should point out, because you didn't you sort of never had a protagonist who could drive? Because you could, yeah, well spotted. Yes, absolutely. True. It is true. And but uh, after I passed my driving test, all my characters could drive. (laughs) (laughs) I used to have to invent weird excuses for why they weren't driving to a place, why they were on the train or the bus, and the car was in service or it had broken down or something. Because you didn't feel you could write about something you didn't know. I just never thought of it somehow. No, I, I would have felt a fraud describing driving without being able to drive. And of course now, I, I love, I'm sorry to say, I love driving. And so I, I quite like describing driving journeys. That's uh, what was it like reading the... There's 22 volumes here, there's lots of stories. What was the, the experience for you as a reader? Because I mean, presumably, had you read all of these before? No, no, I hadn't. So what was it like rereading and reading Muriel's Park for the first time? Did you Was it enjoyable? Were there moments of, of longer where you thought, oh... I was never bored. Really? It was really interesting. I, I was sometimes annoyed or upset or 
perplexed is a good word. I was perplexed, but I was never bored. The only bit that I found myself bored in was in a late novel called The Takeover, which I had reviewed long, long, long ago for the New York Times, and I really hadn't liked it very much. And when I read it, I could see why I hadn't liked it. And there's an orgy towards the end, which goes on and on. And unlike most of her orgies, is boring. Yeah. There's nothing worse than a boring orgy. Exactly. It right. doesn't work at all on the page or off. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Does she have a style, Mark? If we're trying to, I was trying to think about that because I've only read a couple of her novels, but it's quite hard for me to, 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 to su- summarise in my own mind what the actual style of the writing was because it's, it's efficient, it feels to me. It's not. She's it's, described as arch, isn't she? Well, it is interesting. The words like pert and arch mm. do come. She's very epigrammatic, I think. I mean, yeah. she likes a well-turned epigram and, and she doesn't get flowery, no. um, but, she, but she's got a very good use of language. It's controlled, I suppose. It, it's saying. very, very mm. controlled. I mean, you could say artificial... Mm. Um, and in fact, the arch pert thing is a sort of female posturing. A man writer, a male writer, wouldn't mm. write like that. So, well, the, or would a male writer be called arch? Yeah, or would pert? not be called. Uh, that. And that's interesting because you might find that that sort yeah. of epigrammatic efficiency in a man mm. would be called mm. epigrammatic efficiency, mm. and in a woman might be called pert. It's possible. But though I think there is something gendered about her, the kind of jokes she makes. Also, she's very interested in fashion and is very funny about what people wear. There's a wonderful scene, I think it's in The Takeover, where these fake thieves turn up at a mansion with lots of paintings in Italy, and they're they're, they're admitted and served lunch. And one of the guys who's in this white silk suit spills some rigatoni red on on his... beautiful silk suit and that is just such a wonderfully funny scene I mean how the waiter tries to mop it all up and she's very very perceptive about clothing successes and embarrassments mm. do you think if you didn't uh, this is true I, I wonder lots of novelists if you didn't know who it was and someone gave you a couple of these novels and you had to say whether it was a man or a woman writing would you know this was a woman I think I would whereas with Iris Murdoch you wouldn't necessarily no, you wouldn't but you probably would with someone like Hemingway you would obviously in the sense Doris Lessing you would couldn't possibly but is be that, a man is that, yeah. is that for their style or for the things that they're writing I, I think it's an interesting I, I, I'd love to do it as a, an experiment yeah. you know take ten writers that someone's never read and see if they could pinpoint because some of it will be style that does feel like I mean, these days you're not allowed to say necessarily there are differences but there are gendered differences in prose aren't there and yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I think it's mostly content, frankly. I, I really? think it's a, the, the kind of material that people choose to be interested in, like clothes or babies, hunting, <laughs> war. I mean, you know, if, yeah. if you look at sort of Philip Roth, or they're, 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 there's a different agenda there altogether, and it's not wholly to do with the prose. No, that's interesting. Yeah. We should do an experiment at some point. I mean, yeah, it would be very, very interesting. I mean, I did mark some short stories. Um, I've done one or two short story competitions, and the first one, everything was submitted anonymously, and I sexed everyone right. I got them all right. Really? But the second one was undergraduates, very, very clever undergraduates, who were playing games, and I had no idea whether they were male or female, but they were writing a different kind of story, a sort of show-off kind of story, in which they were just being smart. Yeah. Whereas the, uh, the other, the Bridport selection, which Kate Atkinson actually won for a section of a novel which hadn't been published, they, they were proper serious writers, not, not showing off. So and it was easier to work out where they were coming from. And incidentally, that's how Muriel Spark got her break, was, was through winning a, a, a competition. She did indeed. She, she won the Observer Short Story competition. And, um, 
and just carried on mm. from there. And I, I remember that competition. I was only a child at the time, but I remember it, and I remember her winning the prize. And you, um, just on a final note, because I think we'll have to leave it there, you, you did meet her, so perhaps you could tell us about yes, that. Yes, yes, I probably met her once or twice at a party, but the occasion I remember most was when she invited my husband, Michael Holroyd, and me to lunch. Um, with Geordie Gregg, I think it was. Oh. Yes. And well, whatever she... happened to him? <laughs> whatever happened to him. And I think it was it was in some hotel in... Um, oh, I can remember the name of the hotel, if I have a moment. Durrance Hotel, I think it was, where she used to stay. And Penelope Jardine was there. And she was writing her book about Lucan. And she was so thrilled with her own ideas and, she, and I thought what a weird book I mean you know I really don't want to read that but when I read it it is rather gripping so you know she was and she was in her 80s and I think she wanted us to go and stay with her in Italy but we never got round to it and was oh. she charismatic she was fascinating to listen to I mean she was tremendously chatty and sort of full of ideas yes true to her yeah. name yeah she was sparky she was very sparky how lovely what a great pleasure it is talking to you about this uh, Margaret it's a great piece as well and I think I wonder how many people will have read a lot of murals I wonder if she's one of these authors that people have read one or two I wonder how many have read all 22 volumes I mean there are addicts I mean there are people who really love the entire earth but most people have only read one or two you're right yeah great stuff Margaret Jubble thank you very much thank you On the 16th of August 1819, between 60 and 80,000 protesters, most of them textile workers, gathered on the outskirts of Manchester city centre at a place called St Peter's Field. They were protesting appalling economic conditions, the damaging corn laws and a lack of political representation, for this was the era of rotten boroughs and suffrage enjoyed only by the few. The crowd were addressed by Henry Hunt before he was arrested and beaten up. They were then charged upon by hussar cavalry brandishing sabres. More than 10 people were killed and hundreds were injured. In an ironic nod to the famous battle of four years before, the event became known as Peterloo, the Peterloo Massacre. It's the subject of a new film by Mike Lee and a number of books, all leaping ahead of the anniversary to get first purchase on this emotive subject, because workers' rights, state suppression and enemies of the people are always timely and relevant subjects after all. To guide us through them, we're joined by Claire Pettit. Claire, hello. Hello, thanks for having me. Let's just do a bit of the history before we do how Mike Lee's tackled it. Do we know, is it very clear why the charge happened, why this protest was... Uh, ended in this way? Not entirely clear. It's a bit of a muddle. What we do know is that troops were deployed. In fact, two different regiments were deployed before the protest. So I think we know there was an intention to certainly be ready to attack the people. Let's put it that way. I think part of the problem was, though, that there were two different regiments. So there was the Manchester Yeomanry, which was a sort of amateurish bunch of kind of well-off Manchester people who had horses um, and were kind of pulled together um, as a reaction to the kinds of political protests that were going on in Manchester in this period. They were sort of, they, they pulled themselves together into a sort of basically kind of vigilante unit, really. Um, and then there were the Hussars, who you mentioned, who were the King's troops. And you had both of these regiments waiting in different places outside St. Peter's Field. And actually what happened was the Yeomanry went in first and that was disastrous because they weren't trained, they weren't particularly good horsemen. And do we know why they went in? They went in because the magistrates told them to. They were, they were absolutely sent in. There's a big, big question, and I have a feeling about it, as to whether the riot act was actually read or not. 
Okay. Uh, in and the if, film, it is red. Um, and if it's red, in. then so the point of the riot act is that if it's red, people have to disperse. They, have, they should be given an hour to disperse. So even if it was red or not, they certainly were not given that hour to disperse. And if they had been, though, they are in it, the law was they were allowed to be beaten up and even killed. Is that yeah, right? if they did, if they don't disperse within the hour, yeah. then then they take all their lives in their hands. Yeah, all yes, bets are off. Yes. And there were but, rumours. There were rumours at the time, weren't there, in the Manchester Observer that um, the Royal Infirmary, the beds had been cle- uh, cleared to to kind of make room for. Yes. No. I mean, I think I think there's no doubt in my mind, and this is my opinion, that there was a huge amount of panic in very high places about this gathering. And Why though? Because what, 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 what could have happened if this had been allowed to continue? I think they thought it might be a revolution. I mean, they really, really, really? were worried about that word. The, the R word. They were really worried about and, that. And it was it was very internationally minded, yes. this, this protest, wasn't yes, it? Yes, I'm, I'm glad you picked that up because I think that's really important. Um, it just tends to get retold. I grew up in Manchester, actually, and it tends to get retold as kind of Manchester history a bit, yeah, sort of provincial yeah. history, in a, in, you know, noble, glorious Manchester, but Manchester, I think this isn't a story about Manchester. This is a story about France, about America. It's a story about that moment in sort of that, that revolutionary moment for, it runs from about sort of 1770, I guess, through to about 1820, when, you know, things are really, really, really turbulent in a way that I think we've sort of forgotten. Um, that actually it was possible there could have been a revolution. It wasn't at all impossible. And so Mike Lee yes. com- comes along to this. Yes. I mean, it's fascinating to me that all this stuff's coming out. I read the... I read the um, date again I'm thinking oh no it must be 1818 because they're all this yeah, know, but every, they've, every, really, they've really jumped the gun they really have they? jumped yeah, the gun so yeah. it's, this next year is the centenary this is the way anniversaries are going though isn't it, it? Is, they're going to be celebrating the five years of advance because there must be a yeah, competition yeah. must they to, to, to get ahead of it um, why is this appeal to Mike Lee what sort of film has he, he made of it I think it must have appealed to Mike Lee for the reasons oh, you gave a very good um, version of this in your, in your intro I mean he's always interested in the people who are the people and how are the people represented and is the people's voice being heard? I mean, this is a Lee, isn't it, from the very beginning, a kind of a a Lee, I was going to say obsession, but I mean actually a a preoccupation. Um, This is a particularly good story, I think, because he was able... And this is actually, in a way, I'm about to say something which I think might be one of the reasons why some people might not like this film. I liked it. But I think he wanted perhaps to make a different kind of film. This is very much a kind of um, panoramic film. It hasn't got a plot, actually. No. And no central character. No central well. character. No kissing. Nothing. No, there's no romantic plot. There's no... There's nothing no, to lighten the load at really all. Really nothing. It's, it's quite dour in that way. Actually. And it's quite wordy. It's, yeah. it's lots of people standing on soapboxes. I rather like this. Yeah, um, I like it's your point about um, the film celebrating an autodidact working class oratorical tradition. Yeah, and I think that's what he's really gone for. He's really gone for the Samuel Bamfords. Um, and these guys are really very impressive. And the mm. fact that these people who really had, what, three hours schooling a week um, are able to stand up and speak the way they do with the quotations they're using from Milton and from yeah. the Bible and um, it's Pope extraordinary and so that I think it's just extraordinary. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And how actually. did that so, happen? Because you know, I always think about the career of Ruskin, yes. who basically went to, to, to factories and talked Ruskin style yeah, for no, three hours. I'm not sure either of us could no, cope with that. I'm not, or sure, any of us no, I'm not sure you could. But so what was it? Was it just a l- lust for knowledge that was? Because it was restricted, yes. it was it was clung yes. on to even more closely. Yes, I think so. I absolutely think so. And also, I think a, a, a will for power as well. Mm. I mean, you know, perfectly respectable will for power. I think you know, and, and a, a sense that actually you're being left out. You're not getting enough of whatever it is that's out there to be had, and you should have more. So I think a genuine sense of injustice as well, which is driving this. Yeah, kind of. It's a, a continuation of the control the means of production thing. Yeah, the, absolutely. The production is the knowledge and the culture that's. Yeah, from they're that. beginning to wake up to this in a big way. I think in the 18, so 1810s and so on when. 
just at that moment of, of, of mechanisation, actually. Is there a, a bit of a Braveheart criticism possible here that there is a one group of baddies who are a bunch of toffs who uh, want to suppress the good, honest working classes and the good, honest working classes who want to rise up against the toffs? I think people are going to say that about the film. I didn't feel that. I felt for a start that Henry Hunt brilliantly played, played I have to say. Um, he's, a, he's a toff. And who was Henry Hunt? I mean, because he's, he's he was a very Orator. wasn't he Henry, Henry Orator, Orator Hunt, also known as the Wiltshire Peacock, very vain, um, but a brilliant orator. Um, so he was a kind of professional orator, really. I mean, he poured. He was born with a lot of land, and he poured all of his personal wealth into the campaign for reform, which is pretty impressive, really. And he goes around with his signature white hat, so you can see him in a big crowded space, um, and gives these these rousing, rabble rousing speeches. Although, actually, I say rabble rousing, he's quite careful. And one of the reasons that Peterloo was kind of allowed to go ahead, I think, was that when Henry Hunt was announced as the Speaker, he'd done quite well in previous meetings, kind of controlling the crowds, counselling them not to bring weapons, telling them to stay calm and so on. So there was, this film is not a straight split between Toffs and... I don't versus... think so. I mean, the magistrate scenes where you've got the magistrates watching what's going on in St Petersfields and trying to decide whether to react, when to react, how to react. That's, that's quite an interesting um, mix of, of views, actually. And, and there are some restraining voices there from the magistrates. So, you know, some of the toughs are saying, leave them. You know, they're incredibly patronising. They're saying, leave them. They're just idiots, don't know what they're doing. But, they're, but they are counselling restraint. So it's, I, didn't, I didn't feel that. I felt it, that what Lee does rather well is get the kind of confusion and fear on both sides. So uh, that people are quite frightened, but the magistrates are, are very frightened as well. And is he drawing parallels to the present day anywhere? Do, do you feel this is I a... So, so this yeah. is a political film. He's a political yes, director, as you yes. say. He's always been yes. political. It's a political film on lots of levels. I think it's a political film that's, that's trying to take us back to remind us that democracy is quite hard won, to take us back to a situation where actually democracy involves talking in yep. the same room. I think there's something going on there, that the oratory is about presence. You're there. You're listening. That kind of electric effect of a speaker, does, it doesn't really happen on TV. Or indeed on social media, which is or possibly, possibly where the exactly. political discourse now is, exactly. takes it's, place. It's not a Twitter thing at all. No. Um, so I think that's actually very... Pa- I found that very powerful, to be reminded of the ways that hearts and minds can be won. Um, and for good you, and for bad, of and course. And to contribute but, to democracy, you have to do stuff. Yes, exactly. So it's about meetings. And, and what I really loved about it, it's about self-organisation. So mm. working people getting together and having these quite tedious meetings sometimes where some, you know, there's somebody taking the minutes and somebody's being a bit boring, you know, like meet, meetings we've all been to. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, there, but there's something wonderful about that because people can speak, they can have their say, they're allowed to have their voice heard. And, of course, they're not. I mean, there is no, there's no MP for Manchester at this point. No, that's extraordinary. And even though, when there it? is an MP for Manchester... In 1832, nobody apart from, I think, one in five adult men can vote. So, you know, this this group who are in St Petersfields, they're not voting, even in 32. No. So there's really no representation. So I think one of the things that's political about the film is Lee is saying you can do politics. It's important, as you say, that you do politics, you do something, even if it looks absolutely hopeless. You still need to keep doing something. Which, of course, is Maxine Peake has often said that. She did, yes. a, she did a play recently about uh, coal mine protests of the wives of coal miners who... They when occu- the miners strike. Yeah, they occupied the a mine in Nottingham. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to her about it, and she said the point... One of the points of writing that play is to say that you might have to do things. And yes. it doesn't matter if a protest yes. doesn't succeed. No. Because you can make a case... And we have this with the, 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 the referendum march. Absolutely. You have it with the war in Iraq yeah. march. Does it matter if these marches well, don't I mean, change anything? I think that's a really important point for Peter Lou because it, it's so easily written off as a failure. 
you know, oh, it was a disaster, they all got massacred and then nothing happened until 1832. I think absolutely, it's not the way I think about it. I think these are incrementally, massively important steps and I think that's what Lee thinks too. And the government, I mean, the government were more restrictive. I mean... Yeah, the, the, the short-term results were terrible. I mean, it got worse. So, yeah, they rounded up even more people and beat them up, put them in prison and the press restrictions, and this is a story about the press as well. There's a lot of press characters in this story. Really? There's the Liverpool Mercury, there's the Leeds Mercury, there's the Manchester Observer... And, and, of course times, it led to the, of course. and of course it led to the creation of the Manchester Guardian. It did, which was incredibly important. Which then yes. became the Guardian. Yes. So, yes. So, uh, and, and basically won the Corn Law repeal. I mean, it was the Guardian that really got that repeal. So this is, is this pro-journalist? Massively pro-journalist, which is, yes. Which is quite a rare Yes, film. and also reminding us how important good journalism is, how important serious independent journalism is. Which is possibly, again, a, a timely discussion Incredibly when timely. you have Donald Trump yes. Yes. saying, I saw Tom, Tommy Robinson stood up outside the old Bailey and he pointed at a journalist. I mean, he's such an idiot, he just copies things that other people have said, but he pointed at a journalist and said, you're an enemy of the people. No, this is really distressing. And then it? a week after that, Donald Trump, CNN get the pipe bomb sent to yeah, CNN been, and, and he blames CNN. Yeah. The, Trump's been constantly blaming the press. The morning yeah. after. And so there is this feeling. I mean, yeah. also, journalism don't help themselves and cock things up in a horrible in lots of ways. I accept that point. But there is an argument no, that... Good journalism has, has saved a lot of lives, actually. And that, But that point often gets lost now. Yeah. So no, that's, so that's, it's a, true. that's yeah. something that he... Really does. I mean, that's very much there in the film. I think it is a film that is about the press at some level. I think there's, a, a, there's other political kind of echoes there. The, the scene, the, I think the brilliant scene where the people in the crowd begin to realise something's going wrong, you know? It's horrible, actually, because we've all been in situations perhaps on the edge of this yeah. where a crowd is just getting a little bit out of control or whatever, and you're sort of thinking... Hmm. Um, where is the exit? Um, and there's this, there's, there are scenes where people are beginning to get a bit panicky, not quite sure what's happening. Nobody can see anything. It's all blocked and obstructed and so on. He does that very well. There's something there of Grenfell, I think. There's something there of Hillsborough. He, those echoes are, I think, supposed to be there yeah. for us. Because the idea is always that if there's a group of working class people, a riot will ensue just because yes. it's inevitable. Yes, and also why bother helping them because mm. they're poor? Mm. I mean, th th I'm afraid that is sort of in a sense, I think, yeah. what Lee's position might be on this. And so. So you, can, you can sort of see that in, in the, the consecutive ways that... Peterloo has been reframed down the years because there, were very, there used to be a plaque yes. um, in Manchester which, which was very small was and dreadful, blue and it yes. didn't say anything about anyone dying. Well, it, no, it said the crowd was dispersed. Was dispersed. <laughs> exactly. As if like, like maybe it was a little bit of, I don't know, spray perfume or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It and has that, been that changed. Was hold, yes, and now but it's a red plaque. fairly recently it's now yeah. a red plaque which apparently signifies an event of social significance mm. rather than just... Because actually the blue plaque was to Henry Hunt. It wasn't to Peter Lou, it was to Henry Hunt. Because blue plaques are biographical plaques, mm -hmm. so they have to belong to someone. Mm. So they've quite rightly replaced that now with a red plaque, which is about the people mm. and a social event, which is, of course, very much what Lee's film's about. Um, and it does now say that the crowd was attacked. Mm. And so people died. There's a little bit of, of um, revision, revisionist correction there, which is good. Well, I think you've been a very thoughtful and sympathetic viewer for Mike Lee, Claire, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.